Hello and welcome to episode 1467 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN Closing. Hey Ben, can I tell you about some possums? Yes, please. Thanks to some people who uh, passed us on some information about possums and also opossums, mm-hmm. different, different animals. should be opossums, right? The ones we're talking about. Yeah, technically, yeah. yeah. All right, so two things that that are, are key to this that, that I need to correct. One is I thought it's so odd that they're the only animal that, that does this. And, Place dead. And many animals have some version of playing dead. Yeah, but, I, you didn't say what they do, so I was saying what they do. But, <laughs> oh, yes. well, they play possum. <laughs> uh, many animals have some form of playing dead, and some even do something very similar uh, many many of the playing deads are are fake they're under the uh, we're going to get to this but they're under the control of the animal but some it's somewhat automatic so for instance in the hog-nosed snake a threatened individual rolls onto its back and appears to be dead when threatened by a predator while a foul smelling volatile fluid oozes from its body <laughs> predators such as cats then lose interest in the snake which both looks and smells dead one reason for their loss of interest is that rotten smelling animals are avoided as a precaution against infectious diseases so yeah. the snake is in this case exploiting that reaction mm-hmm. newly hatched young also instinctively show this behavior when rats try to eat them so uh so to go back to the to the opossum specifically yes the uh the opossum here here there's a few things one is they are not playing dead at all. This is an automatic response to them. They go into shock. And so I'm reading this. This is an article by Bethany Foster at uh, animals.mom.me. Uh, <laughs> I, I get that. I get <laughs> the response. <laughs> I get the response. But I I like, I, Bethany is my favorite writer now. This article is a is a triumph, okay? <laughs> Playing dead is an involuntary response. The stress of the confrontation facing the opossum causes him to go into shock. This shock induces a comatose state that can last from 40 minutes to 4 hours. While dead, the opossum's body is limp. Its front feet form into balls and drool runs out of its mouth. It may even appear that rigor mortis has begun. The opossum's guise of death goes so far as to produce a smell of decay. From his anal glands, the opossum's body emits green mucus that will discourage most predators from feeding on him while he's in his comatose state. This smell leads the predator to believe that the opossum's body is a rotting carcass. Unfortunately... Being run over by vehicles is now the most common way in which opossums are killed. The right. smell does nothing to help them in this situation. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty cool. And I vastly underestimated the design, the development of this adaptation, and it's fantastic. And I will never mock an opossum again. Yeah. Well, I will still mock the predators for falling for this, though, because my initial reaction to that was, but you just killed the thing or you just had it in your jaws and it was running around and it was warm and alive. And then suddenly it excretes a foul odor or something and you say, oh, I guess it's rotting. (laughs) But I probably overestimated the intelligence of animals. Animals are pretty dumb for the most part. And I guess, I mean, I can't blame them for not wanting to eat something that is excreting foul 
smelling ooze from its anal glands. I guess I wouldn't want to do that either, but I wouldn't be fooled. I don't think I wouldn't assume that it was actually long dead, but still pretty unpleasant to eat. Now, see, I think of the opossum as the avocado of the wild kingdom because (laughs) similar to how an avocado is not ripe at like 1240 and too ripe at 1246, you think you have a meal and then it just goes bad on you. And so you just go, oh, well, I guess this one... This one got sold past its expiration date or something. And so, I mean, yeah, if it smells bad, you're probably not eating it. You're probably not going to be like, well, rationally speaking, I know this is delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So Steven Strasberg signed and we start the podcast talking about possums, (laughs) but we had to get to old business first. Anything else you want to say before we get to Strasberg? No. Okay. So I've already written about this move for The Ringer. You can go read it and look at the graphs if you want, but big news, big signing, big dollars, lots of years. Nationals re-signed Steven Strasburg for seven years and $245 million in guaranteed money with a no-trade clause and no opt-outs and a little bit of deferred money, but not extreme. And it has to be paid pretty quickly after the end of the deal, and it will have interest as well. So... Not surprising, I don't think, that Strasburg resigned, although obviously it was very possible that he wouldn't after he did opt out. But we talked about this before. He had already signed one long-term extension with the Nationals that would have kept him in D.C. through 2023. And then he opted out of that deal, of course, after his very strong season. But he had already envisioned himself as a National. He had already committed to be a National for years in the future. So it's not shocking that he still found that possible to vision. And of course, there's a long and fruitful relationship between the learners and Scott Boris, his agent. Never a surprise when a Scott Boris client signs with the Nationals. And then you have the fact that the Nationals just won the World Series. They're in line for a revenue festival, as (laughs) Scott Boris explained. And people, by the way, pointed out that there is a cherry blossom festival in D.C., which may be what Boris was actually alluding to there. So that makes it a bit more comprehensible, although still he went a long way for that one. And then finally, there is the trend or what seems to be a trend for World Series winning teams to bring back huge percentages of their roster just because they don't want to break up the band and maybe they have more money to spend and there's good cheer. Mike Rizzo said a week ago that he had been drunk for a month. So wow, (laughs) he did get married after the World Series. So that was part of it, I guess. Although I don't know if you should be drunk for your whole honeymoon. That doesn't sound much fun for your new spouse. But anyway, that's what he said. And so maybe uh, Scott Boris talked to him when he was in a compromised state. I don't know. Or maybe he did an end around and talked to the owners anyway. Point is, Strasbourg resigned. Not that surprising and kind of cool that he now will likely be a career national or there's a good chance that he will be, which is always fun when a player can get paid and yet also forge that long-term relationship with fans. And of course, he was the top draft pick and he had that exciting debut and the shutdown and all the rest. So that and the postseason heroics, it's nice that he could stay there. But the surprise is the number of years and the dollars because he had been widely predicted to make a lot less than this. MLB trade rumors had him at 180, I think, and 
I think this just blew up my entire offseason contracts draft. I think you win because yeah. I'm pretty sure I took the under on that, right? You so did. Yeah. It's you, over. <laughs> yeah. You weren't doing great as it was, but not only yeah. did this just sink you way into negative, <laughs> but it also seems almost certain now that Garrett Cole will, yes. will get much more than the 256, and I needed the uh, over on that. Yes, so that's over. You know, at Fangraphs, the crowd had had him at, I think, 140 million. Kylie had had him at 150. So people were projecting him for five years or six years. And instead, he got seven with a higher average annual value. And I believe this is the first time that a pitcher this old has signed a deal this long term since Kevin Brown in 1998. And that deal worked out fine. And uh, Kevin Brown was really good. And of course, the Max Scherzer deal with the Nationals has worked out splendidly. So these things can work out, but teams obviously have been wary of committing to pitchers this age for this long. But Strasburg put himself in a great position for a big payday, and obviously the market seems to be back to some semblance of what it used to be, and this is another example of that. Yeah, did you know that—I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember that when Max Scherzer signed the deal, MLB execs voted it the worst free agent signing of the offseason? I, I remember Dave Cameron putting it on his uh, like worst deals of the offseason list or something at Fangrass, but no, I don't remember that. Wow, I uh, I didn't remember it being seen as uh, as 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 that bad. I I can't remember. What, I vaguely recall thinking that it was good if they traded Strasburg, which is like a uh-huh. galaxy brain. Yeah, right. Take, take. I remember that too. Yes. It was like they, they couldn't have both or something like that. Yeah, yeah. They had too many pitchers. They had to trade <laughs> Strasburg. He wasn't going to re-sign with them anyway or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love the fact that he will be a one player, a one team player. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, I don't think it, I don't, I don't need every player to be a one team player by any means. Nope. There are certain ones though, particularly when the story starts so early in their career when they're, you know, like with Strasburg, he was famous before he became a national and for him to you know, be drafted first overall by this terrible team that's coming out of a terrible, well, it was still stuck in a terrible spot, but he brought them into this era, this golden age. And then it seemed like, it seemed like the Nationals maybe were, were past the golden age. It seemed like maybe they weren't going to win a World Series. Bryce Harper had left and, you know, things started to seem like they were on the decline. And then he, not single-handedly, but I mean, there were like three pitchers on that staff in October, and he was the best of them. Mm-hmm. So sort of single-handedly pitches them to the World Series, and now he gets to be a national for life. So how many, probably, so how many number one overall picks would you guess spent their entire career with one team? Hmm. So this is including ones who just were bad <laughs> in never yes, made the majors or barely. No, made. no. If you never made the majors, you don't get credit for being on the uh-huh. team. This is and, okay. and if you signed somewhere else after but you never made the majors back, then it's not gonna it's not gonna okay. count against you. So what are there there've been like uh fifty five of them or something so far? Something number one like picks. That. Yeah. And of course uh, some of them are recent draftees. So oh gosh, I'd guess uh eight. Yeah, if you only count people who were drafted before Strasburg, there were only four. And there's basically Carlos Correa is, I think, the only. I think Carlos Correa is actually the only one who currently has major league experience and who would qualify. Of course, there hmm. are others who don't have major league experience, but Correa could be the sixth. But yeah, Al Chambers, who played only 57 games 
mm-hmm. the majors, so he barely counts. Luke Hochevar, who was a Royal his whole career. Yeah. Not a Dodger. <laughs> no. At all. That's who drafted him and didn't sign him, right? I think so. All right. That joke will make a little bit of sense. I don't even know what the joke was. And then Joe Mauer and Chipper Jones. And Joe Mauer and Chipper Jones are are both great one-team players. You know, they were both local. They were both, you know, Hall of Fame caliber, MVPs, batting champs, the the whole deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Strasburg fits into the category with, I think, Mauer and Chipper Jones as in a way, kind of the most satisfying number one overall picks ever, along with, of course, Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. So with any long-term deal, you have the generic, well, this could go bad because uh, pitchers get old and they get hurt and anything can happen. And obviously in Strasburg's case, he's coming off a career year, I think you could say, once you put together his regular season performance and his superb postseason performance. And He's lost some fastball speed. He's lost a few miles per hour, a couple miles per hour in just the last couple of years. And he has compensated and adjusted just fine. He's throwing more of other types of pitches, lots of curveballs, lots of sinkers. And he's made it work fine for him. And of course, the changeup is still a good pitch. So there's no real trouble on the horizon. It's always somewhat worrisome when pitchers lose velocity, but almost all of them do, unless it's Justin Verlander, basically. So Strasburg has tackled that challenge about as well as could be expected. And the big question with him is and has been and continues to be durability, and he answered that question as well as he could in one year with a career-high single-season innings total when you combine regular season and postseason. So the big risk is this is a guy who a year ago people didn't think he'd even opt out of the deal, which would have paid him four years, uh, $100 million after this year. And he completely changed that perception in one year, and it became an obvious decision for him to opt out. But if he changed it from an obvious no to an obvious yes in one year, then of course it could change back. He is someone who's been on the injured list in his career nine times. He is many years removed now from Tommy John surgery. So there's always a concern there. He is not really an established workhorse. He's coming off a season when he was one of the best pitchers in baseball, but hasn't been that year in and year out necessarily, at least for a high number of innings. So that's the concern, but makes a lot of sense for the Nationals to bring him back because they had the payroll room and they're in a really tough division and they needed to bring back at least one of Strasburg and Rendon. And we can talk about what this means for Rendon, but this puts them right back into the thick of things, really. If you look at the projections on fan graphs for the depth charts of the NL East teams, it's actually the Mets on top, if you can believe it, in projected war. I don't. Okay. And then the Braves and the Nationals are essentially neck and neck. So if you believe that, which we've established that you don't, at least in the Mets case, they would really need to make one more impact move to make themselves the favorite in the NL East. So yes, they just won the World Series, but the Phillies signed Wheeler and we're already a decent team and may make more moves. And the Braves, of course, have been very busy and they've been signing guys left and right. And the Mets, well, the Mets traded for Jake Marisnik, but they also have a full season of Marcus Stroman and a lot of other really good players. So it's definitely not like they have the NL East locked up. They have to keep making moves. They're sort of right in that sweet spot where every win might matter a lot. So as to the durability question with Strasburg, I was really struggling with this question of whether his injury record is worrisome because he has missed 
you know, a handful of starts in a bunch of his seasons, uh, or if it's really encouraging because he hasn't had a major injury in, in almost a decade. He had, you know, Tommy John surgery when he was a kid, kid, a 22-year-old, and recovered from that very well and has otherwise not had any, uh, any you know, real, like, he hasn't had any major surgeries. He hasn't had anything that's been, like, real chronic or anything like that. He doesn't have, like, blister issues or like a bad back or uh you know degenerative hip or anything like that and obviously you prefer your your ace to to make 34 starts but in this day and age i wonder if being able to say well you know 20 28 on average is really all you really expect from a modern pitcher and his uh, his history of not suffering major injuries the sort of career altering injuries that would really ruin a deal is actually quite a benefit and and add to that the fact that you know because he's missed a little time here and a little time there he hasn't been heavily worked and one of the reasons obviously he proved it wrong but one of the reasons that people didn't were skeptical of Scherzer as a free agent is that he had thrown more pitches than anybody in baseball for you know some time period before he was he mm-hmm. he had he had thrown a lot and people worried that the cumulative effect and it, and it is true if you start to do the actuarial tables of thirty year old pitchers who've thrown a lot of innings they break down it probably is true of pitchers who don't throw a lot of innings either I wonder if Steven Strasburg is perhaps in the sweet spot of having neither thrown a ton of innings nor really shown any any fragility. Yeah, I mean, I guess his last surgery was after the 2013 season. He had some sort of minor elbow thing, I think just like a cleanup of loose bodies. Love the term loose bodies. But I don't think he's had a surgery since then. He has had some elbow strains or like forearm nerve things. He's had a couple nerve injuries. But yeah, like obviously nothing career-threatening. I mean, I guess that almost goes without saying, because if he'd had multiple career-threatening injuries, uh, he wouldn't be getting this deal. I mean, he is kind of like in that spot where he's durable enough to get a deal like this, but also pretty injury-prone for a pitcher who gets a deal like this, right? I mean, I guess you could say that. If he had had a more severe injury recently, then he wouldn't get this deal, I guess. But for someone who did... There are quite a few red flags or things that he's had to transcend. Yeah, I, it's hard to. I mean, not many. Obviously, not many pitchers get a deal like no. this. Not many pitchers mm-hmm. are in position to get a deal like this. I so it's hard to find a, a comp. But you know, you look at Zach Wheeler's deal. Zach Wheeler is obviously not. He didn't get two hundred forty-five million dollars, but he got one hundred and twenty million dollars, and he is you know not nearly as good a pitcher as Steven Strasburg mm-hmm. has a, a a very recent injury history of of major injuries that that was only 2 or 3 years ago and uh he still got he still got 5 years and 120 million which is more than we were we were expecting and so it is true you're right i i don't it might be that that this is a, a logical conundrum where I will never find a pitcher who has both major injuries and also <laughs> a $245 million contract or a seven-year contract or anything like that. But I don't know. I guess I'm just uh, offering the, the more optimistic take on his, mm-hmm. on his workload, on his history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2018, he pitched, what, 130 innings or something, and he had a, a couple IL stints. So... That was concerning coming into this year, and then he put those concerns to rest about as well as he could have. Yeah, if there's anything to worry about, in fact, it might be that his innings this year, once you include postseason, are, mm-hmm. you know, a lot. Like, what did he, he threw? 20, 30, 40, like 34 postseason innings. So he threw almost 
250, more than 240 innings mm-hmm. this year, which is uh, a career high and, and high for anybody. I don't know what the current research is on the postseason hangover effect for starting pitcher workload, but it is certainly something that people talk about. And um, and uh, maybe you could say that uh, it was his, maybe the thesis I had for his well-managed workload and sort of a beneficial workload, maybe that bought him this year. <laughs> and maybe now that's all old news because he just threw 240 some innings yeah so when we talked about the new krasniks the rogers is the espn poll of front office people and baseball insiders 12 of the 15 that were surveyed said that rendon was the more likely player to return to the nationals and so still might but strasburg has and i think if i were choosing between them i don't know like on the one hand Rendon is probably a a better player and a more dependable player, just as a position player even. But also, I could see how it might be more beneficial for the Nationals to lock up Strasbourg if they were only going to sign one, just because the Nationals' top prospect and one of the top prospects in baseball is Carter Keboom. He played some third base in AAA this past year. He can play third base, so you have a ready replacement there, obviously not like one-to-one for Rendon, at least not this year, but that's someone you could envision taking over that spot, whereas if Strasburg walks, then you can't really replace him with someone who's just as good without signing another big pitcher, or at least they don't really have one who's ready right now in the same way, so I see why this might be more vital. On the other hand, I just don't see why they can't do both, and I know that Mark Lerner, the Nationals' principal owner, he said, he implied that they couldn't do both, and that was what Boris was responding to when he came up with his revenue festival. But just looking at the the payroll right now, even after signing Strasburg, they're at a projected payroll of $166 million, according to Roster Resource at Fangrass, and that means they could theoretically sign Rendon for, say, $35 million a year and be below the competitive balance tax threshold still pending other moves that they might make. But this team has been around the $200 million level in payroll the past couple of years. Rendon and Strasbourg were making combined more than $50 million this year, so it's not as if they're getting enormous raises, really. So... I just don't really see, especially given the World Series revenue boost, why they couldn't afford to bring both those guys back. So maybe Lerner was just negotiating and trying to set expectations low, or maybe he actually meant it. But if they don't bring back Rendon, it it seems like it would be more a case of just not wanting to spend the money than not being able to spend it. Speaking of quotes that you can interpret a little bit differently now that this contract is done, it was exactly one day earlier that the report leaked that the Yankees had offered Garrett Cole seven years and $245 million, (laughs) which is the exact same deal that Strasburg got. And of course, you know, Scott Boris is both of those people's agent and Mm -hmm. presumably had a pretty good idea that Steven Strasburg was about to sign a deal for something like seven years and something like $245 million and that Garrett Cole would end up signing something for much, much more. And so I've been thinking about who who leaked this and Uh what they were trying to get out of it. And so you have basically two possibilities either the yankees leaked it because they wanted to be you know caught trying and they wanted to maybe create a an anchor around that number 7245 and in that case it's sort of hysterical thinking that they were just so 
unaware of what was coming that they actually yeah. thought like we're gonna we're gonna leak seven two forty five and look like really aggressive and <laughs> right. then like twenty four hours later they just look like they're seventy five and a half million dollars shy yeah. and uh it's like just it's like the scene where like you know the character doesn't realize that like the like the monster is like behind them and they mm-hmm. just are like enjoying life <laughs> or it's scott boris who or you know not necessarily boris himself but that it was the you know boris's side the agency side that that uh leaked this in which case it's kind of an odd flex like yeah you know you're you're sort of like hanging the yankees out to dry your because you know that the next day you're gonna just blow that number up and mm-hmm. I don't exactly know what Boris would get out of leaking it, but no. he knew if he did leak that, I mean, if he, if, if he was the source of that, I guess it would mm-hmm. be, I don't even know if it's right to call these things leaks. This is like just part of the kabuki. But mm-hmm. if he was the source of that, he knew probably that the exact numbers were probably coming out the next day for a different pitcher. It's kind of interesting because he knew them both. He knew it all. He knows too much for the teams <laughs> to compete. Yeah, I know. He's he cornered the market this offseason. It's a fantastic <laughs> I mean, they should really write a play about about Scott Boris representing the top three free agents in an offseason. <laughs> yeah. So his quote on why Strasburg signed before Cole, which I saw in a John Heyman tweet, is markets are like flowers. The beauty begins from below. <laughs> which, Wait, hang I on. Don't, uh, what? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess he means like he's starting low and, and growing from there. It, it doesn't really make any sense. Anyway, I think he's implying that the numbers are going to get bigger from here, and obviously they are. So this is a record contract in terms of total dollars and in terms of average annual value, but it's going to be a record contract only until Garrett Cole signs, which from the frequency of the rumors flying around might also happen this week. We'll see. But this will be a record for probably less time than Bryce Harper's contract was a record before Mike Trout signed his contract. But either way, a Boris client gets the record. But it's funny because Jason Stark had written on the day Strasburg signed that there might be a $280 million deal out there for Garrett Cole. And eyes boggled and we thought, wow, $280 million. Now that looks like the absolute floor because, I mean, Cole is more than two years younger than Strasburg. So if Strasburg gets seven years, you could imagine Cole getting nine years. But even if he gets eight, I mean, he'll obviously get eight. And even if he got eight and the same AAV that Strasburg got, that's eight, 235, that's 280 right there. And that's the absolute minimum that he could possibly get now, I think. And so maybe he goes over the AAV, maybe he goes to nine years, maybe both of those things. But it seems clear that it's going to be over 300 and possibly by a, a good margin. I saw a reference to the, I think this was, this might've actually been Jason Stark writing this, but a reference to the, now the race for you know, the, the chase for Cole and how, you know, the, the Yankees will put their best offer forward and the angels will see if they can like hang with the Yankees and the Dodgers will try to think creatively. And I, uh, that, you know, harkens back to the Bryce Harper thing last year where they weren't going to give Bryce Harper 13 years and 300 some million dollars, but they were willing to, you know, break tradition and give him a four year deal with much, much higher average annual value. And I just wonder what the equivalent would be. I wonder what the Dodgers creative 
option would be. I wonder what is what what is left for creativity on mm-hmm. on contracts. I would like to see teams get more creative. I would like it to be there, there to be uh, yeah, well, not swell. <laughs> no, please no swell ups, but I would like to see a lot of different shapes of contracts so that you aren't simply going, well, is that number bigger? Yeah. Than the one I was thinking of. Like I liked the Chase Utley deal a few years ago where there were like three vesting options and one was a club option and then the next was a player option and then the next was a club option but only if the player hadn't exercised his option and he had 300 plate appearances or something and you just stared at it for like 40 minutes trying to figure out who <laughs> who wanted who who was benefiting from each clause mm-hmm. i like those deals for yeah. variety's sake yeah all right so that's strasburg couple quick things wanted to mention also i don't know if you saw fabian ardias tweet joe madden said that he would consider dropping the dh on days that shohei otani pitches next season which means there's a possibility that otani will be a true two-way player and that would be fun for us obviously if otani hits on the days that he pitches which seemed like it would probably be an impossibility once he signed with an al team at least in non-interleague games and i don't know whether this is smart or not it would probably take some math and projections to figure out because obviously it it depends partly on how deep you think Otani can go into games and how good you think he will be and he's coming off Tommy John surgery and it's it's hard to say like he's not going to be a workhorse so will he go deep enough into games to make this worth it because once he is pulled from the game if you don't have a DH then your relief pitchers have to hit and that might hurt you more than Otani helps you so especially especially because the days that Otani goes deep are the days that you need the least offense and the days True. that Otani goes out that has to leave early and you're going to be going through a, maybe a bunch of pinch hitters those are the days that you're probably trailing and need to catch up and actually need the offense a lot more mm-hmm. and might need to stretch your relievers more which would mean not wanting to pinch hit for them and take them out of the game yeah and obviously it depends on well does this increase the stress on Otani? I mean, I don't think it, it would in a marked way, but of course, I don't really know. And Madden also said something to the effect of he doesn't want to treat his players like they're made of China or something, like he he wants to use them. And it's encouraging, at least, that uh, it certainly seems like he's not thinking about unto weighing Otani. This, uh, I don't know that, that this is, is a recommended move, but I, I kind of hope it happens. It, it also is maybe dependent on like, well, do the Angels actually have any other starting pitchers next year? Do they sign Garrett Cole or someone? Because if they don't, then they're going to be piecing together a, a ton of innings with their bullpen and then they might want to use roster spots on bullpen pitchers instead of a pinch hitter because you'd you'd need a good pinch hitter to make this work probably. And maybe that's more feasible because you have the 26th roster spot next season. So you could carry that dedicated pinch hitter who's kind of been retired and phased out of the game and, and could come back. But again, the Angels just got through this past season throwing, I think, many more innings from their bullpen than their rotation. So if they're going to try to do it that again, then they may just have to stockpile relief pitchers. Yeah. And the dedicated pinch hitter that you have, if you had one, if you had a good pinch hitter, if you invested in a, a player who was able to hit but not field because he was old or whatever, mm-hmm. you don't have a DH spot for him most days. Because now Shohei Otani is your DH 
and also is batting when he pitches. And so it would really be somebody who would only pinch hit, presumably, mm-hmm. if, if, if he were a good batter. Yep, yep. All right, so we will see if that actually pans out. Just saw some breaking news that the draft next year is moving from New Jersey to Omaha, which is something that was floated this past year, but it didn't seem like it would necessarily be a permanent thing. I think that's kind of cool. Don't have much to say about it, but it's nice because it might mean that more of the players will actually show up and there will maybe be a live audience at the event and it will have some energy as opposed to an MLB Network studio in Secaucus where almost no one shows up and it's not really scintillating TV. So I think that's a positive. And the last thing is that Marvin Miller and Ted Simmons were elected to the Hall of Fame by the Modern Baseball Era Committee. Jay Jaffe and I talked about the Marvin Miller question on a recent episode, so you can go back and listen to that. The quandary is that Miller said while he was still alive that he did not want to be inducted, and now he has been. Jay thought, and I tend to think, that it probably does more good than harm to put him in, even though it was against his wishes, and even though it's so overdue and belated that it's almost comical that it took this long and it only took this long because of you know cowardice and resistance to Miller among people on the committee and maybe not wanting to to be there to give a speech and now it's like well uh, he he won't show up at the induction ceremony and excoriate anyone so they'll put him in now which uh, it's not the time that they should have put him in but he's just been so important to baseball that I think a museum about baseball should have a plaque for Marvin Miller and hopefully it brings more attention to what he's done the ted simmons thing i I think simmons is deserving i think he's sort of on the lower end of deserving but but deserving and it's interesting that he credited sabermetrics people for getting him in because he's not necessarily the the number one cause of sabermetrics people but i guess the numbers have helped him a bit what continues to confound me is the people who don't get in and the vote totals for other people so Simmons and Miller got 13 votes and 12 votes, respectively. You needed 12 of the 16 to get in. Then you have Dwight Evans with eight, Dave Parker with seven, Steve Garvey with six, and Lou Whitaker with six. And it just, it seems very inconsistent. Like, I don't know that Simmons is better than Dwight Evans. I don't think he is. It makes no sense that Dave Parker and Steve Garvey got more votes or as many votes as Lou Whitaker. Uh, Lou Whitaker is such a a clearly deserving Hall of Famer that I don't understand how Simmons gets in and and Whitaker doesn't, unless it's just kind of the people on this very small committee just happen to like him better or have seen him play more or have relationships with him or, or whatever it is. So it's disappointing that those people did not get in, but good that a couple people did. Who was the, what was the voting body this this time? It was executives, so Sandy Alderson, David Glass, the former Royals owner, Walt Jockety, Doug Melvin, and Terry Ryan, and then some media historians, Bill Center, Steve Hurt, Jack O'Connell, Tracy Ringlesby, and then some Hall of Fame players, George Brett, Rod Carew, Dennis Eckersley, Eddie Murray, Robin Yount. So kind of a mix. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is odd. I mean, I feel like Ted Simmons has been one of the names you hear about as a mm-hmm. as a snub for a long time, but um but not he I don't know, he kind of had I don't know, not not fallen out of fashion, but he was not at the top of the list. He no. he was not one of the first four or five names that you heard. And so um it is it is it would be interesting to find out 
what the rationale is for all these. If Ted Simmons is in for any reasons that you and I would agree with, Mm -hmm. or if the fact that Steve Garvey gets more than Lou Whitaker suggests that this is just, uh, that they have a completely different process for deciding these things. And it just so happened to sweep up Ted Simmons this time and Harold Mm -hmm. Baines last time and and not Lou Whitaker and, but some, you know, but also not a bunch of other players who shouldn't be in there, but yeah, (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Anyway, no Baineses this time. So I guess we take what we can get. So this is Chase Utley's deal from from back. Okay. So Chase Utley's new deal is worth $27 million, but if he stays healthy, it can max out at $75 million. Received three vesting options, each worth $15 million on top of his two guaranteed years. Each of his options will vest at 500 plate appearances. Okay. So that all seems fairly simple, but then it gets a little more complicated when you spell it out. Utley will receive $15 million guaranteed in 2014 and $10 million in 2015. It's already kind of odd because he's now getting more money up front, which is not very common, but mm-hmm. he did. He can also earn an additional $5 million in 2015 if he is not on the DL for more than 15 days with a specified knee condition. The contract also includes a $2 million buyout and a full no-trade clause. The formula for his vesting options is straightforward. He needs to reach 500 plate appearances in 2015 to guarantee himself a $15 million salary in 16. The same math applies in 16 and 17. If he falls short of 500 plate appearances in any of those seasons, his option would then revert to a conditional club option. The value of those options would range from $5 million to $11 million, depending on how many days he spent on the disabled list the previous season. So. <laughs> wow. You need a whole podcast to break that down. Yeah. Boy, my head is spinning. We did a podcast to break yeah, it down. Probably. <laughs> August yeah. 8, 2013. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, and uh, I just saw also that uh, MLB will no longer be testing minor leaguers for marijuana use, which is uh, good and sensible. That's always been one of these weird things where minor leaguers were not in the union, mm-hmm. so they were subject to tests and suspensions, whereas major leaguers were not. So, What does that mean that they're not testing? Is it is it still it's just prohibited? not a ban- no it's not a banned substance so there's even circumstantial evidence or like being like like they're, they're just a non-issue now i think so yes and it's part of the uh program for testing for opioids which will be more of a treatment program than a, a punishment program which also seems good okay all right so i brought a topic i was not anticipating that we would have a strasburg signing to talk about beforehand so We may get through half of this, I guess, and maybe we can finish the second half next time, unless there's a million more signings to talk about. But I was recently sent a copy of the new Bill James Handbook, which comes out every year around this time, and it is mostly a reference book. It is stuffed with stats on the league and every player, defensive stats, pitching stats, every sort of stat, really many of which you can find online, but not all of them. And it's also kind of nice to have a hard copy because you can just flip through it and see things that you wouldn't have known to look for. Anyway, it is not entirely a reference book. It also has some essays every year. And Bill James always writes a few things for it. And he wrote a quite lengthy essay for this edition of the book, which he calls The Aesthetic Issues or 50 Ways to Stop Baseball from Being Swallowed Up by Home Runs and Strikeouts. So it is uh, essentially a list of ways to fix baseball's aesthetic problems. It is not actually 50 ways. It is 30 ways because he ran out of ways at 30, (laughs) but kept the title at 50. Does he address that fact? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, there's an editor's note that says, uh, well, he ran out of steam, so he doesn't get the 50. <laughs> you know, here's my aesthetic fix for, fix for baseball. You only play six innings, and at the end, you say it was nine. <laughs> well, he talks about the, the shortening baseball games thing. So anyway, he, uh, he weighs this out. I'll read a couple quick passages. Basically, he says baseball has economic problems and aesthetic problems, and the economic problems are probably far more serious and also intractable, but the aesthetic issues, which are maybe not as serious, are more easily solved, and that is what he is trying to do here. So he says, I am not saying that baseball is currently selling an ugly game or an aesthetically unpleasing game. I will leave that up to you. You can like the modern game. You can hate it. It's your call. The essence of the aesthetic problem is this, that as baseball players have gotten to be bigger, stronger, and better trained, two very narrow athletic skills have threatened to crowd out of the game a wider range of athletic attributes. This is obviously nothing that we haven't discussed on the show. He continues, historically, the essence of baseball has been the contest between fielder and base runner. A strikeout historically was the relatively rare event in which a batter failed so completely that he was unable even to create the contest between fielder and base runner. The home run was the relatively rare event in which a batter succeeded so completely that he denied the fielder any chance to make the play. Over time, however, both strikeouts and home runs have been increasing in frequency for a hundred years. The marginal events have been becoming more common and the central events have been getting less common and less important. So this is mostly about home runs and strikeouts and the ways that they are increasing and at their highest rates ever. But he also tackles the, the time of game and the pace of play and the fact that games are longer than ever too. So he says that up until about 1915, baseball regularly adjusted its rules to fix problems like this. But he says that at some point, it, it seems like uh, he's saying maybe in the, the late 70s or so, by that time, the problem arose. The idiotic, self-destructive idea had taken hold that baseball was a perfect game in which the rules never needed to be adjusted for new realities. This paralyzed the game for 40 years, which, frankly, pitched baseball into a death spiral. We've just begun to escape that paralysis and try to fight to save the game. And then his last point, essentially, is that this isn't as hard as people think it is. People adopt radical and harmful solutions to problems, stuff like cutting the games to seven innings or going to three balls for a walk and two for a strikeout or banning defensive shifts because they don't see that there are transparent, non-invasive ways to address the same issues. Let's try a scalpel before we bring out the bone saw. So he's not saying that we should do all 30 of these things at once, but he's saying that individually speaking, he approves of these 30 suggestions. So I'm just going to go through them and uh, you can give me a, a yes, no. And where relevant, I will uh, mention anything that he points out to, to clarify what exactly he is suggesting. So he starts with the pace of play, length of game stuff, and he says the big problems are batters stepping out of the box between every pitch and unnecessary and constant pitching changes. So his first suggestions are, one, prohibit players from stepping out of the batter's box after the at-bat has begun. And I should say, some of these are things that have been discussed ad nauseum. Some of them are, what? No one's ever said that before. This is wild. So it really runs the gamut. So okay. number one, stepping out of the box, you can't do it after the at-bat has begun. Or number two, limit the number of times that a batter can step out of the batter's box after stepping into the batter's box to, let's say, one per team 
per inning. And he says this is more of an umpiring policy change than a rule change, really, because you're not really supposed to do these things, and it's just that umpires let players get away with it. And so if they stopped granting timeouts, that would essentially fix the problem. My feeling, I've had this conversation recently, and it's fine. Yeah, sure. I, Mm -hmm. I would not be opposed to it. But my feeling is that batters don't step out of the box very often. It's a very small part of it these days. I mean, most of the delay between pitches is... Uh, is driven by the pitchers, and I find that there's very little batter-driven pace still in the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if uh, I don't know if I'm wrong. I don't know if your sense is that I'm wrong about that. Uh, but I would consider this to be fine, but not really much of a fix. Like ten years too late, because for the most part, the, there are already restrictions on when you can step out, and most batters don't don't do it. They mm-hmm. go to the back corner of the box and they uh, take a breath, and then they get right back in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that the pitcher is a a bigger problem. And he acknowledges in here sometimes that some of these rule changes would not really directly address the problem or or would not fix the problem on its own, that it's just uh, something that should be on the books and might help a little and, and wouldn't hurt. So his whole purpose here is basically to intervene without making it very obvious and obtrusive that these are things preferably that a fan might not even notice from the stands, but they will work their magic and and have some effect. So now he's talking about pitching changes and he acknowledges the rule that seems to be coming for 2020 that a pitcher has to face three batters or finish the inning. He says he likes that. It's good. It will help, but let's see how much. So his suggestion here or, or one of his suggestions is A team may make as many pitching changes as they want in a game between innings. Also, any pitcher may be taken out of the game at any time after he has been charged with a run allowed in this inning. Beyond those two situations, a team may remove a pitcher from the game in mid-inning without a penalty once a game and only once. You've only got one free shot to remove a pitcher who has not given up a run in this inning from the mound in the middle of the inning. And then to enforce that, there would be a penalty of some sort. He suggests that maybe just assessing a ball would be enough to do it because often you're bringing in a pitcher to get the platoon advantage and maybe giving the batter a ball would negate that. But he says he'd favor an even stronger penalty is uh, that the next hitter takes first base and that all runners who are on base move up a base. Boy, it is a a problem. It's not a problem that it happens, but if you have a problem with the pace of the game, that is like a huge part of it. And Mm -hmm. the fact that those pitching changes come at the most exciting moment and that they take us away into the land of like uh, car commercials, it it does (laughs) kill the momentum. I think it would be, my ideal would be that there would be no warmups and that you could get the pitching change done in a minute and 20 seconds and uh, never have to leave the the field of play because then I feel like the tension would be potentially be ratcheted up as you're waiting. But it's not my column. It's not my 50 ideas. Do I like <laughs> limiting pitching changes mid inning to one per game? Not particularly. Mm-hmm. I don't like one per game things, mm. generally speaking. Yeah, feels like you're you're imposing that constraint in kind of a heavy-handed way. Like, that doesn't seem that different to me from now it's three balls and two strikes or Uh or it's seven innings. I mean, it's less less extreme, but philosophically speaking, it seems sort of along those lines. I would like it more if it were none per game than one per game. Mm, Yeah. But no, you don't want to have pitchers left out there. I mean, I, I like that pitchers can have 
I personally like that pitchers can have very specific roles. I feel like uh, they end up having well-defined careers as as a particular type of of journeyman laborer. You know, like uh, like they're. I think that's a. I was it you guys you and uh, was it this podcast here that we were talking about <laughs> the gig economy and how relievers were the gig economy. I think so. <laughs> well, I thought that was an interesting idea, but I think of relievers as being like the different people on a construction crew. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, each one has their own craft, their own skill that they spent years honing. Um, mm-hmm. And um, making every pitcher have to get through an inning is not quite my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. It will be, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated to see what happens to some of the loogies, and and loogies have kind of gone away, but there are still some who are more loogie-like than others. And I think Susan Slusser recently reported that the A's were not going to bring back Ryan Buckter, even though Ryan Buckter has been quite good because he has been one of the pitchers who would Mm. be most affected by the new rule uh, about the length of outing. So there will be some class of pitchers, presumably, who will be sitting on the sidelines next season because of this rule directly. So... All right, considering or continuing here, we have we're up to number four. So four, five, and six, and seven, these are all kind of rapid fire in that same vein. So limit a team to using three pitchers in the first nine innings of a game. That's mm-hmm. number four. Mm-hmm. Or number five, limit a team to 11 pitchers on a roster. Mm-hmm. Or number six, limit the number of pitchers who can be used in a series. So a maximum of seven pitchers in a three-game series or Ooh. 10 pitchers in a four-game series, let's say, with an increase of one for each four extra innings, if there are extra innings. And then his seventh one is to prohibit any pitcher from pitching in consecutive games, period. Ooh. Yeah, that's a, that's a strong one. So, All right. I, <laughs> I'm going to go back on whatever I just said about construction crews. I like the three per game. Okay, per nine innings, yeah. To me, that's a nice number, and it seems like it would have a, a good limiting effect. And uh, yeah, and it would you. I like counting pitches. I'm I'm really into counting mm-hmm. pitches, and it would force you to count pitches. I also I do like the number of pitchers per series uh-huh. because I I like the idea that what you do in one game can have some benefit or True. or harm for your next game. I I, I like all, all sorts of things where the result of one game has some some carryover effect some ripple effect on the next game yeah so i like that if i were to do that i would say unlimited pitchers and extra innings extra innings Mm -hmm. no limits do whatever you want so you'd still only get your seven and three games or whatever in the first nine innings but you could have as many as you want in extra innings back-to-back games feels a little too i don't know feels like a little league rule to me it feels like it feels like you're protecting it feels more like a move to protect pitchers than yeah than not than to uh to regulate them Mm -hmm. regulate their usage and i don't think that it's necessary to protect them i don't think that's what bill james is suggesting it would be for but i think that's what it would be seen as Mm -hmm. and then the last one was limiting to a certain number of pitchers on a roster Seems fine to me to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd probably would be in favor of it. I don't know what the ramifications on a on an Otani would be with that. Right. Well, there's already that's a consideration for next year, right? That you have to designate a two way player, and that player has to qualify for two way status in certain ways. So that's. Yeah. It's yeah. just that you couldn't use a two-way player as one of your 11 because it would yeah. be a disadvantage. And yet if you allowed if you allowed extra pitchers, if they were two-way players, you might see all sorts of 
chicanery where you know you start seeing pitchers who are you know put at second base for one game a month to get qualification as two-way status or something like that so Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like it could be tricky to have clear definitions of who pitchers are Mm -hmm. all right number eight is uh, also an attempt to reduce pitching changes so if a pinch hitter is announced and the other team brings in a different pitcher the team at bat may withdraw the pinch hitter and may use him later in the game. In other words, being announced as the pinch hitter does not mean that he is in the game, does not mean that the other player has been replaced. It merely signals an intention to put the other player in the game. He's not actually in the game until you throw him a pitch. And the thinking there is that managers wouldn't bring in as many pitchers because they wouldn't be getting, they wouldn't yeah, they get much benefit out of it. They couldn't guarantee the platoon advantage because you could just, uh, well, you, you could pull back the, the pinch hitter that you had announced Right. Uh-huh. right. And so the the defense would say, well, if I bring in a reliever here, they're just going to pull him back anyway. Mm-hmm. And unlike the current situation where I know that they can pinch hit for the pinch hitter, I'm not even making them burn two batters. So in yeah. fact, I'm making them burn no batters. I don't have a good feel for how this would play out. Mm-hmm. It seems... I don't think you should be able to announce a player is in the game and then take him out of the game. <laughs> yeah. I but... like the idea that in baseball, you can be in the game without it actually appearing that your right. whole you love your, those guys right yeah <laughs> what are you, that your could, whole you have a name outing uh no i don't think i do but we did a stat blast i think i might have done yeah. an article on pinch hitting for yeah. the pinch hitter mm-hmm. and yeah the idea that you can show up get stretch you can stretch <laughs> and uh work up a sweat and all that so that you can be a professional athlete and your job that day is to be announced and then leave uh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you appeared in a game. Yep, yep. that's I like great. That I want those. <laughs> yeah. So I don't. I don't want him to be pulled back. Okay. All right. Number nine. He wants to start enforcing the rule that the pitcher is supposed to have his foot on the rubber when he delivers the pitch, because he says there's been a, a creep here where people used to talk about pitchers throwing a 59 foot fastball, which was considered cheating. Now it's a 57 foot fastball, and he thinks this is a part of the cause for the increase in strikeouts. This is Rule 5.07 that he says is routinely being ignored, and he explains that it's easy to see why it's being ignored because you can just go bit by bit by bit and it's very difficult for an umpire to see and call in the moment and so you get away with a little bit and you can keep going a little bit more and more each time and so he suggests that to enforce this in the least intrusive way possible you could have say special umpires maybe replay umpires who look at the video of the games after the fact and they see which in slow motion were illegal and track that data and publish it and so if there's a a pitcher who's a repeat offender and he's always not touching the rubber then you can warn them find them suspend them etc or you could allow a, a protest during a game so say once a game after a strikeout the manager could protest that the pitch was illegal and you could review the tape and find that he wasn't touching the rubber and you'd give him a do-over basically and so that would be a, a pretty effective deterrent in theory of the the 57 foot fastball can you throw a pitch and stay on the rubber? I I assume so, right? I uh, mean, are any of them doing it? Well, at this point, I don't know that anyone is. Uh-huh. And so, so we would be turning everybody into a 1930s pitcher? Yeah, <laughs> basically. Which, uh, I mean, I, I get it because you've got guys throwing harder than ever and they're 
bigger than ever, and so they're already getting that pitch on top of hitters sooner. So there's a benefit there. I don't have a problem with pitchers throwing the way they throw. Yeah, it's not clear to me. It's not obvious to me that this is as pervasive as James is saying. Like I don't doubt that it is, but it's just something that I haven't really noticed and so it's it's hard for me to say that it's imperative that we ban it immediately but i am generally in favor of getting hitters a a better chance to make contact and if that comes from keeping pitchers on the rubber i'm not against that like it it wouldn't necessarily affect what they're doing that much would it i mean you could just couldn't you start from farther back or something like you wouldn't necessarily have to completely redo your delivery i don't think so so i'm this is a new concept to me so i'm just going to make sure that i'm clear on pretty new to me too okay so so the 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 idea is that when a pitcher a modern pitcher pitches he throws you know he's he's leaping off of the mound basically we're not talking about we're not talking about jordan walden here there's no skip going on there's no like double step or anything like that it's just that in the process of of you know firing their body toward the mound they come off uh, toward the plate. They come off the rubber before the ball has technically left their fingertips. Mm-hmm. The, that they have kind of slid away from the mound. So they start on the mound. They do their stretch. They they push off the mound. And as they're pushing off the mound, their foot comes out of contact with the mound before the ball has left their fingertips. And presumably, almost every pitcher, almost every pitch. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking at the comment to Rule Five Point Zero Seven A. It says. In the wind-up position, a pitcher is permitted to have his free foot on the rubber in front of the rubber, behind the rubber, or off the side of the rubber. From the wind-up position, the pitcher may deliver the ball to the batter or step and throw to a base, disengage the runner. If he does, he must drop his hand to his side. In disengaging the rubber, the pitcher must step off with his pivot foot and not his free foot first, or else it's a balk. We know that. So, yes, I, I think that what you were saying is what James is saying. And do you think that the reason that this change appeals to him is because there's already a rule in the book, and so it's easy to say, well, there is a rule, so just enforce it? Or do you think if there was no such rule, we would have an entry for make a rule that you have to stay on the rubber? Yeah, well, you'd have to have that rule, right? Or else you could just deliver the pitch from wherever you wanted, right? You could. Well, just quickly... you could say that you have to be on the rubber when you begin your, you know, when you make your move toward the plate. Yeah, I guess so. I think that the fact that there's already a rule appeals to him, yes. Mm-hmm. But we could just as easily solve that by taking out the rule. True, <laughs> yes. Although okay. that wouldn't solve the problem. It wouldn't solve the perceives. problem, but it's the question I'm trying to figure out is whether this is like a a question of taking the rule book more literally and it just bothers him that there is an unenforced rule or if this is simply one no, of he's many... bothered by the effect i think which is that the effect is to, yeah. to handicap pitchers in some mm-hmm. way to to restrain how... well the, the intended effect is to handicap pitchers but what's happening is right handicapping hitters right and so we're trying to come up with a way to handicap pitchers and keep them from throwing with full effort Uh, as they do these days and Mm -hmm. i would say that i don't have a problem with them throwing through full effort and if we just want to put a um, some sort of restriction on them that limits their ability to pitch well i think that i would have others that i like more Uh uh-huh well i think i like this next one more we've talked about this plenty but move the mound back but james's suggestion is that you just move the mound back three inches 
because he says that any more than that would uh, potentially be really disruptive. He says that there's been some talk of moving the mound back by two feet. Whoever suggested that has probably never played baseball. And he says his reason for that is pitchers spend 15 years learning to make a slider break at just the right moment so that it breaks across the plate. If you move them back two feet, every breaking pitch is horribly off target, and you can't just fix that in spring training, which uh, I'm not a pitcher, so I don't feel qualified to necessarily weigh in on this. But does that sound right to you? I mean, once you release the pitch, aren't you just trying to get it to break? I mean, you can't necessarily make it break such that it starts breaking or stops breaking at a certain time like once you release it you can't impart any force any spin on it anymore so in many cases aren't you just trying to make it break as much as possible and obviously like you you don't want it to be way out of the strike zone so you have to kind of calibrate where you're aiming and and where it's going to break but if you moved it back farther obviously it's going to mess with your control just inevitably because you're farther away but the calibrating the break so that it breaks at just the right time is something that i hadn't thought of at length but in general i agree with him like let's start with just a small move back and see what happens and he says if three inches doesn't do anything then move it back another three inches so i might say six inches just because it's already you know a six inch interval away which is just sort of strange so just make it a whole number but uh i'm on board with the principle of the thing i think they should keep the mound where it is but move the plate back Mm, yeah okay i'm fine with that too all right next one 11 if a starting pitcher is removed from the game before pitching five innings and before allowing four runs to score that pitcher is ineligible to pitch again for eight days wait a minute if he doesn't say it again if he is removed from the game before pitching five innings and before allowing four runs oh He's ineligible to pitch again for eight days. Oh, so this is just simply coming up with like a... Anti-opener. Yeah, okay. So the rule is that everybody has to be able to pitch deep into games and that that has to be the default uh, unless you get get blown out. So we're not going to make you throw 270 pitches trying to get out of the fifth, but you cannot as a strategy be expected to only throw three innings. Right. And his point is uh, basically, he says, in bold and italics, baseball should be played in the way that fans most like to see it played. And he, I think, agrees with things that we've talked about in this podcast. I've written about that openers are are not as fun or, or at least bullpen games are not as fun that I like the starting pitcher. It's nice to have that narrative protagonist who's in the game the whole time. And you're looking at the pitch counts. You love the pitch counts. So He is saying that, on the one hand, it's nice to allow innovation, and he says that he's generally against any rule that attempts to change baseball, but I'm often in favor of rules that prevent changes to the game, and this is a change that he doesn't like, and he believes that most people don't like, and so he says uh, we don't actually have to let people do it, so... We have always followed the policy, he says, that if managers figure out a more effective way to do something and it changes the game, we allow that change to take place. And changes have, in fact, happened for 150 years. That's fine, except when it isn't. This is a case when it isn't. And he says that it forces the sport to sell anonymity, essentially, because you just have interchangeable bullpen arms coming and going and not as much focus on the stars and players you know. Mm Mm-hmm. It would be more of an issue 
in a future world where ace pitchers aren't still used as more or less the way that they are if if it got to the point where where even even max scherzer was only throwing three innings and they might come in the fifth inning or something uh then i think that would be true but as it is now the pitchers that are only going four innings are not i don't i don't feel like they're the pitchers that you're paying to see anyway uh, and while it's true that there might be some aesthetic deficiency there uh, that you've picked up on and that he's picked up on I don't think it's enough to merit stepping in and, and uh, changing changing how managers do this I would come up with a, a better solution to this problem a more organic to me solution a less chase at least three vesting years options uh kind of seeming solution mm-hmm. and i think he already did it with the three three pitchers in a game uh-huh yeah i struggle with this philosophically speaking because on the one hand it's an entertainment product and you should probably intervene to make the product entertaining if it starts not to be on the other hand i really do value innovation and strategy and tactics and coming up with ways to sort of bend the rules or succeed within the rules, but in a novel way. And I think we generally agree on that. I mean, we briefly became obsessed with the strategy, right, with removing a pitcher mid at bat to get an advantage. And it's hard to argue that after the initial intrigue that that would generate, that that would actually be good for the entertainment value of the game. Because if anything, if it worked, then it would just mean more strikeouts and overmatched hitters and more pitching changes, and none of that would be fun. And yet I am intrigued by the idea because no one's ever done it before, and it might actually help. And so those two desires are kind of warring within me to encourage teams to try new things and find advantages and then to reward them if they do. And yet now we're at a point where you can argue that teams that have found those advantages are actually now making the game less entertaining. So I don't know where the balance is there where you still allow innovation, but also act to make sure that baseball is still fun for spectators because that is the more important thing. Yeah, I just I don't think there are 150 interesting starting pitchers in the world. And no, that's true. There's really only about I don't know somewhere between maybe 18 and 35 that you even notice really when you're when you're thinking about whether to watch a game. And so I just don't feel like it's that big of a loss as it is now. And and I personally really like relievers. To me, relievers are are a interesting part of how I consume the game. And I like multi inning relief stints a lot too. And mm-hmm. so I personally do not see a huge need, but I definitely allow that within a few years, it could be more appealing to me. Mm -hmm. All right. Number 12, he again is trying to focus on known players and stop the roster churn. And there have been some rules that have already been enacted to try to do this, like increasing the amount of time that a player has to stay in the minors after he's optioned so that you can't just constantly cycle through people. But His rule suggestion, limit each team to one roster move a week, except that perhaps three times during the year a team can use a free roster move. If you get two players actually hurt in the same game, you can use your free move to deal with that. Otherwise, you've got one move a week, and let's say that you can save your move for one week only so that if a team does not make any roster move in one week, they can make two the next. Here's an idea. I think that you should, everybody should be allowed to use the carpool lane once a month when they really need it, (laughs) whether they have anybody in their car with them or not. And so I think that the way that you do it so that you don't have 
basically people trying to get away with it every day until the, the one day when they're caught and then they go, ah, it's my one day, is that you just, when you need to use the carpool lane because you're really late to pick somebody up and, you know, this your work kept you there and, like, you're, you're kind of desperate and there's no other way around the traffic except this is you just call, you call a number and you register your driver's license and for the next, say, you know, 120 minutes or so, you have free access to the carpool lane uh, whether you have anybody in it or not. And I feel like there's a, it's great that the carpool lane incentivizes carpooling and it's great that it gives a you know a benefit to people who have multiple people in the car. There's a sort of a, a way in which that in, increases the greater happiness in the world. I like that. But mm-hmm. the people who really, really, really need it the most, I feel like they deserve a lane once a month. You should clear it out. <laughs> I mean, people really need to get places sometimes. Yeah, sure. I just think what a blessing it would be to to once a month know that you can. Of course, probably what would happen is like the last day of the month, everybody yeah. who had a who had an unused carpool day right. would would all crowd the thing. Yeah. All right. One roster move a week with a couple of extras thrown in mm-hmm. there, and you can uh, save one. Yeah. So if uh, you get a couple people hurt, you aren't powerless to do something about it. I think that. I think we just have to live with with the churn, with the roster churn. I, I think it's probably a bad idea to tell teams when a player can or, or should or shouldn't be in the majors. If there's a fairness problem with player compensation, it's probably something that should be collectively bargained and probably best handled that way. If it's just about wanting to have, like, again, the, the players that would be affected by limiting roster churn are not the players that most fans are learning the names of anyway mm-hmm. you know we're we're already talking about the 28th player on the roster right and i don't think that you're gonna like all of a sudden have baseball players in nike commercials because <laughs> you've uh you've kept the teams from doing 26th man roster moves mm-hmm. all right let's do two more number 13 is limit throws to first base by pitchers now he yes. says that his yes. actual <laughs> yes ben his actual preference is to eliminate the Bach rule and replace it with something better, no, which he doesn't specify. Okay, well, but... if it's with something better, I have a hard time arguing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but I don't think, I think if you eliminated the Bach move, then you would actually have a much slower game because mm-hmm. pitchers would be doing all sorts of complicated, you know, deception that would take a long time. Uh-huh. So I don't think you can remove the Bach rule and all fix right. things. But So he wants to limit it to, to th- two throws to first base per batter. If you make a third unsuccessful throw, then the base runner automatically advances. Yeah, and you're basically limiting it to one uh, because the second one would be almost, well, I was going to say almost an automatic stolen base, except we all watched John Lester for (laughs) the last few years. But basically, pitchers would not use their second one very often. And so you would have essentially one to 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 throw over and i like that a lot i think that's a fantastic one i think that the 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 tension of knowing that a pitcher was out of throws or maybe had one left and had to decide i feel like would add a nice element of of interest it's already kind of interesting when you're watching that split screen to see whether the batter uh, the runner is going to go but when you throw in limits on pitch counts i feel like anytime a base runner is on that can steal it becomes a, a very very detailed chess match to watch Yeah, and this would theoretically maybe increase base stealing a little bit, which would be nice because it's kind of at a low ebb right now. 
And I mean, he talks about it as if this is a a huge problem, like people throwing over 15 times or something, which I don't think it is. There aren't that many really glaring examples that I see where the game just totally stops because someone's throwing over over and over and again. But it does happen. It happens from time to time, and it should probably never happen. And he says that it's just an oversight that they would have put a rule in the books to prevent this if they had thought that it would be a problem (laughs) that you would have people throwing over that many times and Mm. that it it just didn't happen. And it, it makes sense because like, even just to prevent the theoretical possibility of someone stopping the game entirely by throwing over indefinitely, which obviously doesn't happen for societal reasons. Like you you don't want to be the person who stopped the game and did that and everyone would hate you. But it's still just to, to get rid of that loophole, I guess, that you could make a game infinite by throwing over forever. You could also have it be that you get one freebie and then everyone after that is a ball because it is now a it is mm-hmm. it is considered a throw that is not in the strike zone so it counts as a ball. I think the other thing the beneficial thing of this is I think you're right that it would increase stolen bases a ton. I mm-hmm. think it would increase pickoffs paradoxically. I think there'd mm-hmm. be a lot more pickoffs for one reason because there'd be a lot more base stealing. And for another, because you would have base runners who thought, well, the pitcher's out of throws, or maybe he only has one left and he's not coming over here, and they would be a yeah. little bit more aggressive. And so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Didn't Jeff Didn't Jeff write an article one time about- Yes. It was Bruce Chen. Bruce Chen. There you go. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. So good. How many throws was that? <laughs> I don't know. That was it was a, a lot. Ten. A base, baseball ten, Nation post. Ten times. To it. Okay. Yeah, ten times. All right. And the last one for today, this is uh, in the same vein, to prohibit the pitcher from throwing to first base unless the runner off of first actually has at least a six-foot lead. You Six see it, feet. You see it all the time. The pitcher just isn't quite ready to pitch, so he throws to first even though the runner has no lead and is no threat to steal. It's annoying. Another thing you could do would be to draw a little line six feet off of first base. As long as the base runner keeps one foot on the first base side of that line, he's absolutely safe because the pitcher can't throw to first if he doesn't cross that line. Again, it's an almost invisible rule to the fans, apart from the little hash mark, because the pitcher would almost never throw to first when he was not allowed to, and you never give a thought to what doesn't happen. Are there many pickoff attempts where they're only six feet out? I mean, I'm getting hung up on the number six here. I, well, he could have written eight, and then I would have less argument. But Yeah, well, I mean, you do see just like lazy throws over where you're not even trying to pick the guy off, and it's just like reminding him that you were physically capable of throwing yeah. over there or something. How and, many do you see, though? How many do you uh, really see? We watch a lot of baseball, and we <laughs> see maybe like, Thirty a year, so uncommon. But I, I don't know how many of those the runner is actually within six feet of the bag because he might still be taking a decent lead. So, uh, well, one problem with having any number of feet, unless you have that hash mark that he suggests, is that well, how are you going to know that it's six feet in that moment and not five feet eleven inches or something? So, unless you have like that real time stat cast thing that's telling you how far the guy is off the base, then that would be tough but you could put a little mark and just say well if he's not actually seemingly making any attempt to steal a base then why would you throw over so don't waste everyone's time yeah i would say that i don't need this rule but it'd be fine too it would be fine it's fine i don't i think i think you're talking about uh 20 seconds like one every like 14 games yeah probably and if you just 
put in the the limit on throwing over, then that would take care of it by itself. Yeah. All right. So the the last 16 of these are more offense-oriented and more related to the strikeouts and homers than pace of play. So I think they're probably a little more compelling. So we will get to that next time and whatever moves have happened and maybe some emails, we will see how the winter meetings proceed. All right. You know, I'd be remiss in not mentioning on a day of a lot of good and exciting news for baseball, another little tidbit that came out of the winter meetings. MLB and the MLBPA and Sony announced that they have extended their partnership to keep making the MLB The Show video game franchise, which they've been making for decades now, it was originally called MLB, debuted in 1997, and as MLB The Show, it's been sort of the standard bearer for baseball video games for years and years now, but it also has been exclusive to PlayStation platforms, and according to this press release, the historic expansion of the long-standing partnership will bring MLB The Show for the first time ever to additional console platforms beyond PlayStation's platforms as early as 2021. So that's good news because Xbox owners, for instance, have been without a baseball game or at least a good licensed baseball game for the whole of that console's history. So it sounds like when the new consoles come out, we'll be able to get the show on multiple platforms, which is good news for baseball and for gamers. So just passing that along for the gamers in the audience. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Maximiliano Burgess, Daniel Laughlin, John Gilbert, Olaf Hong, and Greg Scarfo. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastofpangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with our next episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Steve.